Computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to the Intelligent Performance Podcast, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavour and champions of ambition. And today we welcome Helen Bullen, who will take us on a remarkable journey through the course of her courageous battle with stage three breast cancer. We'll explore how Helen faced the news of her diagnosis with unwavering strength and positivity, examine the profound impact of gratitude and perspective on her journey, and how she discovered the importance of doing things that make her smile. We'll also discuss lessons we can learn from supporting individuals with any kind of health challenge, and explore the transformative power of effective action versus simply being busy. Helen really is a lady who embraced every challenge with grace and resilience. It's a really inspiring conversation. So thank you for joining us. Let's get started. Where I'd like to start is with your diagnosis. So you've just been told you have stage three triple negative breast cancer. What, tell us a bit, you know, what was that like? What was going through your head at that moment when you've just been told that news? Yeah, it's something you don't think you're going to get told. And actually, before I knew I had stage three triple negative, they actually told me I had breast cancer. I got screened. I went to a mammogram. So just encourage everybody, go for your testing when you get offered it. Had no idea I had breast cancer. Right. Went for a mammogram. And then they sent me to a centre, which does sort of like an overview, another mammogram, a recheck, all the tests and ultrasound. And on that day, they said to me, you've got breast cancer. And I'd gone on my own because I just thought, oh, it's one of those things I'm called back. It'll be nothing, la, la, la. Gone on my own. And then I just went into like a shock. Now, I, I'm pretty matter of fact. So first of all, I was talking to them like it was, you know, I don't know, talking about my car MOT, something like that. I was just chatting to them, thinking, yeah, this is fine. I can cope. I started to shake. So my physiology, right. I kept saying to the consultant, they were trying to take biopsies and saying, I'm really sorry. I don't know why I can't stop shaking. And she's saying it's normal. And I'm thinking, not normal. So really shocked. I then had to phone my husband. And again, I just phoned him and said, oh, hi, Ed, I've got cancer. I'll be home soon. Like, I'm mean, the poor guy, but that's how I went. So I deal with, I've done it before when I've been in emergency situations. I'm really black and white until mm. the thing is finished. So I was like that. And then the day that I went to the consultant and I was told the level of the cancer, right. that I don't remember much, if I'm honest. I know they were speaking. I know there was a nurse there. I know my husband was with me. Everybody was listening. All I heard was that can't be happening to me. I'm going to die and leave my kids on their own. And that I remember just thinking that. But everything else, to be honest, I have no idea what they said. Afterwards, they, you know, they give you the books and the leaflets. But really, it was complete shock. I never thought I haven't got any history in the family. Yeah. I've always pretty well. I'm pretty fit. I've never smoked. All those things that you yeah. think are the triggers. And there I was sitting and somebody was honestly telling me I had cancer and it was stage three and triple negative is aggressive and that they had to get the chemo started as soon as possible. They do the mastectomy at the end and it's not a choice. It's not a thought really. And I remember thinking, oh, and it was like when people say, you know, I was watching myself. It was yeah. a bit like that, you know, as an echo chamber. So yeah, that's how I was. I don't know if that was well controlled or not, but um, that's how I dealt with it. It was just to be like, oh goodness, you know. Yeah. And I wasn't dying and I, they'd never said that to me. There was a chance if it had gone further and I hadn't had the scans yet, but that's all my head was telling me was I'm dying. Yeah. yeah. So interesting. And it, yeah, it's interesting what you said about, it's almost like an out-of-body experience in some moments. I, I've never had it that myself, but I, I've heard other people talk about it in that way when you... It's just unreal. Use. You know, yeah. you can hear it and you're like, but surely that's never supposed to be said to me. Right. Never, you know. Yeah. That's so interesting. And tell us a bit further on then. So you, 
initially you're it sounds like you're not in denial as such but your brain's definitely thinking kind of struggling to grasp the reality like you know how it doesn't fit into your current reality given you know what as you say you've been healthy no history in the family things like this so and then you, you're obviously other reaction was think about your kids possibly think oh i'm gonna die and so how is how did that then develop in terms of your your mindset in terms of once you know you had time to process and actually accept this and yeah tell us talk us through kind of how you approached it psycho or yeah yeah psychologically in terms of yeah. how you were going to approach your dealing with it yeah to begin with I was all all over the place and then I just got a bit angry I don't know whether it's like phases of going right. through it I was like angry yeah. and I was really cross and I know you know the, the name of my book is Agnes and B Cancer and Me I yep. named my boobs right Agnes and B okay and I was furious with Agnes and I was like mad because I'm a retired osteopath. So I know a bit about pathology. Her cell division was, I won't swear, but it was terrible. Right. And I was mad with her. And I think somehow disassociated being my boob, it was like Agnes and she was wrong and she was in trouble and I was mad and how dare she. And I'm also been, I'm also quite a positive person. And I yeah. don't really believe in having a glass half full or a glass half empty I quite like to think I have a glass overflowing and then occasionally it gets tipped right over. We all have curveballs in life. Mm -hmm. And then what I thought was, okay, it's been tipped over. I can either wallow in this and feel terrible or I'm sort of letting Agnes and cancer win by being miserable. So actually, how about I do all the things I want to do? I'm going to meet with friends. And it was COVID at the time, so I had to do it all at distance and whatever but I wasn't going to let it make me miserable every day. Otherwise, that was winning. And if I was going to die, which I didn't, still didn't know in the early days, why would I be miserable on the days I might have left? And I really tried to work on that mindset. And um, I ended up looking in the mirror. Now, I've always spoken to myself. I'm sorry, I've just owned up to, to the world. But I do chat away and I look in a mirror and I smile at myself that, yeah, you've got this. If, you know, if I'm going to talk on a stage mm. or something like that, you've got this. And I used to look in the mirror and, you know, I went through the phases of having long hair, hair falling out, having no hair, no hair at all anywhere, bloating with the steroids. And I'd look in the mirror and smile and then think, I still see my spirit. I still see me. Mm. And I got quite a cheesy grin. I still see me in there and I'm going to focus on that. And I'm strong and I'm tough and I'm going to do this. And that's not saying other people that don't think like that when they've got cancer aren't strong just that I'm a fighter I think I came out punching that was just my way to think I'm not letting this I'm just not letting this be something that brings me down you know it may do but right now I'm going to fight the fight and I did have one person once say to me they didn't like the term fighting cancer they found that right. quite triggering. Uh -huh. but I think it's quite subjective I definitely needed to fight my way out of it other people will be more passive but that was just my way of doing it, it was like I'm angry and I'm going to sort this out. Yeah. That's fascinating because I, I guess there's so many emotions you could go to. You could go to one of upset, uh, yeah, one of anger, but also anger at the world or, you know, if you believe in a God, maybe the anger with God. But I guess you, <laughs> you were angry, which I think is lovely, with your boob. Because yes. it's also, like you said, it kind of then it disassociates yourself from the, the cancer as such. And so it's almost like yeah. you're, you're against your boob. And yeah, just tell me, so you, you named your boobs. Again, why was one boob healthy and one was 
had cancer in it. Yeah, so yeah. I had cancer in the right side, who uh-huh. I called this. And I'd always, this is really weird. And I, I write in my book that I never thought I would tell anybody this. I had a favourite boob all my life. I always thought right. I'd let my right one was a little bit more perky, a little bit better looking. I know, who does that? But anyway, I had done. So I sort of already got them as A and B. And then I was like, well, Agnes, and sorry if anybody's listening, called Agnes, but Agnes sounds like you're in agony. So she all going right. to be a, Agnes. And B was like B, B, like Beatrice. And I liked her. And I was a bit like apologetic, yeah. but I'd never loved her. And it just, for me, I've always called things, thing, weird things. The kids used to laugh. I don't call a dishwasher a dishwasher. I call it a wishwasher because right. I always wanted one. And when I got one, so I've always done that sort of thing. Mm. And the kids just are used to me doing it. I mean, they're all grown up now. They just go, it's one of mum's sort of things. But, you know, I called my lymph node, Larry the lymph node. I mean, Agnes had passed on her bad mathematical. She'd taught Larry as well. Mm. He'd got it too. So I just sort of made it as my way of putting humour into it. In the book, though, I'm not humorous all the time. There are really black times. And you mentioned all those emotions. I go through all of them. I could sobbing on the ground one minute and the next minute picking myself up, filling that glass back up. It's tipped over, fill it up again, go and see a sunrise, go for a walk, do something and then get going again. But it definitely was a roller coaster. I wasn't just like, you know, Mary Poppins and like, everything's fine. It just certainly wasn't like that. Yeah, no, that's just the way I dealt with it. And, and actually people seem to like it. Yeah, that's great. And I think we can relate to that as well, because I think we all struggle with things. You know, cancer is probably one of the most more extreme things we struggle with. But in all times of life, we have, we, we have struggles and we're trying to, you know, overcome things. So I think it's just very relatable. And I, I also love what you said about why would I be upset on the days I have left? Because I guess obviously then you you don't know how it's going to pan out. So you might have thoughts about, you know, unfortunately, this is going to be the end here. But I guess also it's just more appreciating an appreciation really here in, in what you said there about appreciate the time you have got and did you did you have in those periods did you have any did you look at your life differently at all when you've had it you know that you had your life panned out well mapped out but maybe it'd be a shorter now did you did that change your perspective anyways on your life yeah I think it did I think it made me reflect on how I'd lived my life I think right. there was periods in my life especially I've been through a divorce etc right. that I was just getting through my life I was running my own business. I was doing stuff. I was having to pay mortgages and, you know, kids. And and I think I spent a period of my life, good probably five or six years, of just going through the motions, getting from right. Monday to Friday, having the weekend, earning the money I needed to, trying to, you know, a lot of us do that. We're busy, yeah. busy, busy. And actually, it's when you look back and you suddenly think, wow, 10 years has passed. How did that happen? Right. So I think it changed me in a way that, and I'd already started doing my business. I was an osteopath at lockdown before I got cancer. And I just thought, actually, I'm going to retire from that and do what I love, which I've been doing alongside right. the business mentoring. I want to do more doing what I love when I want to do it with whom I want to do it. And I think I do that now more. And every day I try and put something in my day that I think is fun. Or, I, you know, even if it's going to see a sunrise, having a coffee with a friend this afternoon. Yeah. I just try and every day and be grateful. I think we can, and it's not, not really because I had cancer. That's what I, when I, with people, I just say to them, it doesn't matter if you have cancer. None of us know what is going to happen tomorrow. None of us. Our glass can get tipped over really easily. So why wait till something tips your glass over to appreciate? Why not all of us every day think I'm going to be grateful for what I have? You know, if you have a roof over your head and you've got food and water, to be honest, you're lucking out, you know? But it's easy to forget, isn't it, in society? And we spoke about where I live in the UK, in Surrey and, and London, I know you're aware. We have a lot. We have a lot there. We do. It's, you know, there's a lot of money around and there's a lot of resources and the, and countryside if you want it and that sort of stuff. I'm really fortunate. 
Yeah. And so, and my kids, I kept thinking as well, touch wood, my kids are healthy. And I had just retired from being full time with a, a big business where I had staff working for, et cetera. My husband had just retired. All I kept thinking of, if there was a time I had to have cancer, this actually was the time. Right. My daughter had just moved into a house. My son was with his fiance and house. My stepdaughter was with her boyfriend, all moved out, all settled. We were semi retired. And, you know, God, if there was a time to be, to have it, it was. Yeah. So I tried to just look on the positive. And I've always had a saying, and I've always used it in my work life, is negativity feels, I have a rude word, but feels terrible. You can insert yeah. whichever one you like. But it never makes anything better. Yeah. It will never solve the problem. So don't do it. That really simplified. And sometimes there's problems where we have to sure. get help and whatever. But if you can sort of think, by being negative or being on the floor sobbing, which I do, you know, regularly, I call it snot yeah. and slogger. When I really go, I go. Yeah. But I'm soon to pick myself up and think, right, what can I do to make this better? Even when people have passed away in my life, it's like, well, I can be sad or I can live in their memory and think, let's be the positive, I, most positive I can be because they didn't get the chance. So why am I wallowing? So I think it's trying to put in perspective what we have and that it's not going to make it better. And I'm not talking about people that are clinically depressed. You know, I'm a retired osteopath. If your people feel really bad, go and see your GP yeah, and get it sorted. But if it's just a bit of a case of why me or, you know, social media, other people look like they're having better than me, yeah. that sort of stuff, reality check is pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, also, I think with the whole, the social media is a good point in terms of we, I think people get miserable because they look at other people and think they're having better lives. But I think it works the other way. Like, it reminds me of, I did a self-development course many years ago and the leader who was leading the course, he said this thing which stuck me. He said, you know, if you've got a problem, you need to go and find someone who's got a bigger problem because then it'll put your problem in perspective, which yes. is just such a valuable thing. And, you know, so many people, like you say, we're so lucky and, you know, we live in the UK and we're, you know, we live where we live and there's so many people who don't have access to, you know, things we just take for granted. So yeah. I think it's wonderful. Helen. Just, I was curious though, obviously there must've been days you mentioned, you know, sobbing on the floor, which is understandable. But, you know, when you're going through your chemotherapy and you're going through the pain that involved with that and the, the obviously the losing your hair and all these kind of uh, the weight gain. And, you know, how do you where do you go on those in those moments when it's really tough and you're like, you know, thinking I can't do this anymore if you have those thoughts. But, yeah, how, how what's your approach? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'm very honest when I write about it that I did have days and I remember one day thinking, you know, it's lucky I have children and it's lucky I have life in, or lucky I have life insurance that if I did anything to myself, because there were black days that black, right. that they wouldn't get the payout. It's weird, isn't it, how your brain yeah. works? I actually remember thinking that and thinking, right, I have to. I obviously wasn't suicidal to the point I couldn't think rationally. Yeah. I could, but I did get those dark days. It wasn't a case of always being happy, happy. Mm. But what I did do is I had a really good friend. Actually, she gets a chapter in the book, Jackie, and she was really good at listening to me. She didn't She didn't give me any platitudes. She just listened to me. She said, right, it's all about you until we've got you through your chemo. And then no more, no more. So it made me laugh. And we used to walk every day, even if I couldn't really walk. I had some walking poles and we just go to the corner of the road and sit on the wall or I might be able to manage a couple of miles. I love walking early to see a sunrise and I would get terrible hot flushes and, and I my pulse rate would go up because of the chemo. But that was my way. And I think I'm answering your question because I've probably possibly gone off on track. But that was my way of keeping myself going was to do things that made me smile 
even if the smiling wasn't really for very long. And and right. chemo is terrible. You know, not terrible. Chemo is different for everybody because everybody gets a different type of chemotherapy. I was on a weekly chemo, so I didn't get chance to really recover. And chemo is brilliant in what it does, mm. but it also it kills all fast growing cells. So it right. it kills your your mouth, your your bowels, the lining of your bowels, your your hair, everything. That's why everything gets destroyed. And it's only after about three days that that really starts to kick in. Three to about seven days, and then I was going for chemo again, and I did find that really hard. But on the good days, and I had a, a route that I used to walk around here, and I used to go out the door, and if I felt good. I could do the whole route. If I didn't forget, I had little roads that I could go up and cut round that only made it about five minute walk or a 10 minute walk. And I would just get out the door, just a fresh air. You know, and that's what I did. And I had another group of friends that did a like a coffee meet for me. And it was in lockdown, but we'd go and sit outside a cafe and I would sit with them and they would just chat about everyday things, not about my cancer. Yeah. And I could just listen, have a cup right. of coffee and listen and think, oh, okay, the world's still going on. Occasionally, like, oh, I wish my world was still going on. But that was great too. So, yeah. And I think it's very subjective for every person. I don't think there is a set pattern for a cancer sufferer to follow. And I don't think anybody should feel there is. Give us some advice, to Helen, about, you know, having gone through this from you know, it's interesting here, your friend who did that thing where she just said she would just be make it all about you until your chemotherapy is over. Maybe you speak. Could you talk about, you know, your experience of your husband and your family and your friends? I mean, have you got any advice for people who have relatives who go through cancer? Because I think I'm, you know, touch wood. I haven't had anyone in my family who has gone through that. And I like to think, you know, I try and be supportive, but I'm not sure whether me, how I feel, feel being supportive would actually be supportive. So I'm curious to know, having gone through it, what advice you have for relatives friends people who are going through cancer you know you, you think you think you, you can only speak for yourself I guess but you think you've learned is beneficial and how people can try and support yeah I think it's important to ask the person you yeah. know and when you ask how you how are you listen right and I think what I liked with Jackie when I walked with her she would say to me well what's going on what's the latest test what's the whatever right. That was good for me. But you may find somebody you're supporting doesn't want to talk about it. So ask them, do you want to chat about it or do you want to talk about something completely different? And I think that's the thing is just listening to what the person needs. The other thing, if somebody is going through chemo, what really didn't upset me, but what was hard was when and I did 16 chemotherapy sessions. I think only four of them were every two, two weeks and then the rest weekly. It was tough. Yeah. And people would message me on the first day say well done another one done I still had another seven days of chemo effects to go through and I found that hard I was like you don't understand and I think that was down to asking well what happens and I a couple of friends that asked I said it's by day three day one actually is okay day three to day five oh I feel awful and I've got to do injections and they're they're the days that they would turn up with a meal or they would take my husband out to the pub you know look after the person that's looking after the person and they would send me a message you know I had a lot of people drop me this is personal I don't like a candle I don't like the smell of many candles and I just think I'm going to burn the house down I had so many candles dropped at my door it was like people would drop them and drive off fast wow which was lovely but you obviously felt that they didn't quite know how to speak to me yeah and and I get that because probably mm. if it had been the roles reversed I would have maybe done the same but the people that were best that people just checked in with me and didn't yeah. by week eight forget 
that I was still going for chemo. Right. So they'd listened and worked out when, and they were cheering me on all the way through. Yeah. And that was really nice. But I would say, don't worry about what you say, because I think that's a bad thing to do. I think ask the person, listen to them and just make contact. And if they say, I don't want to talk at the moment, respect that. Yeah. Maybe write them a hand note, write them a letter, put it in the post. I'm thinking of you, you know, don't put in you've got this or, you know, my auntie had it and she didn't die or she did die. You know, I had a lot of those. Oh, God. You know, platitudes don't work. Just yeah. say, I'm here when you need me. I'm going to drop off something this afternoon. I don't know, for your husband to eat or your wife to. Because I think thinking about the other person is important, too. Mm. But I, I don't want people to think there's a right and wrong. I just no, think it's good contact the person and try and work out what they need. You know, I'm really grateful my kids were grown up, but if I was somebody with small children, I think I might have rung somebody and said, right, would you like me to pick up Johnny and Mabel, whoever they are? I'm going to pick them up three afternoons a week for as long as you need me to. That's done. Don't you worry about it. Or I'm going to make their tea or something like that. Sometimes it's hard when you say, um, if you need me, ask. It's very hard to ask somebody sure, for what you sure. want. So yeah. sometimes a direct, like, would you like me to, will yeah. work. But, um, yeah, it's very subjective. So listen to the person, work out what they like, be aware of what they're going through, mm. and don't just drop a candle on the doorstep and drive it. <laughs> Unless they like candles. <laughs> if they listen to this, it'll be no. horrible. <laughs> oh, no. No, that's so great. Yeah, I mean, what I hear you say is that you say, listen, and I think you could apply that to any walk of life. It's just good advice, isn't it? Yeah, Generally, yeah. Anyone dealing with anything, just listen rather than we all want to try and, yeah, kind of share what we think is good advice for people, but actually just sat back and they, they might not want the advice. They might just w- yeah. want to talk. But also I just hear, try and educate yourself about maybe what's going on. You, know, I, My mum's got dementia and I think it's been helpful for me over the years to kind of watch documentaries about the disease and films and, and speak to the people who've been through it and it's it's kind of given me more of a first one appreciation what my mom's going through and secondly as someone who's obviously trying to take care of her it's been super helpful for me to talk to others who are going through that process too so yeah just just kind of educate yourself but then also um yeah just provide a space and to be be proactive here you say really like just rather than ask for them to reach out to you just reach out and offer to do things you know will help um, yeah, and don't be offended if they say no, thank, right. thank you. Sure. Don't be offended by that either. You sure. know, you put their offer out and do it again in two weeks. Would you like it now? Or, you know, I think that's the thing to do. And, and just be comfortable with, you know, if you say the wrong thing, it, it doesn't actually matter. No. Try and correct it by doing the right thing by listening. Yeah, I think the last thing I hear was also the good point you made was be consistent. Because I imagine at the beginning, everyone's like contacting you going, oh, I'm so sorry to hear this, yeah, anything I can do. Then they'll just disappear. And you're still going through it. So actually check in with someone periodically, just so you know, that's probably more impactful because you know the support's ongoing. They're still there. They're still thinking about you. So yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I look like a florist when I was first diagnosed. <laughs> it was like, oh my God. But I had one person who did a monthly subscription for my flowers. Oh, wow. so I got flowers every month with a little note from her. That was lovely. I didn't see her throughout the whole thing because it was COVID, whatever. But that was lovely. And I appreciated all the flowers that everybody gave me in the beginning, but there were, and they're, they're acknowledged in the back of my book, actually, the people that just showed up. And there's still people. Yesterday, in fact, yesterday, I was actually in hospital for two and a half hours because we thought it might have come back. Oh, wow. And there was a handful of people who check in me regularly who knew that's what I was going to do. Yeah, I'm all clear, so all is good. Right. But they are still checking in because yeah. when you've had cancer, it depends on the type of cancer, but I've got a 60% chance it won't come back, 40% it will. They're quite high. 
So I feel like it's a shadow behind me and I keep the sun in front and the shadow behind me. But I have some people that just say, how are you? And they mean, how are you? And I think that's something to learn, isn't it? Whenever we ask anybody, how are you? Mean it, mean it and wait for an answer. Not like, oh, fine, thanks. Yeah, listen to that. Yeah. Fine. Are they fine? Do they yeah. want to help? And I think that goes with a lot of the mental health that we is is all being talked about now with everybody. It's like we just need to listen more and yeah, yeah let That's people great. have a chance to explain if yeah. something's going on. Great. I, you know, I, you know, I was talking to my brother the other day. He's got a young baby, and he, I was he, I was saying, yeah, how how is she sleeping? Is she crying much? And they don't. Him and his wife don't talk about it in terms of crying. They just say she's communicating. And the same with their three year old. And I was like, that's really interesting. And, he, and what he was meant is that, you know, often when they're crying, you can get, we get triggered by the fact they're crying. But in fact, she's just hungry or she's tired yeah. or both. And it's just, they just label it communicating because then they, it forces them to, okay, well, what's she communicating? We need to listen. We need to work out. You know, she wet the bell. You know, it could be anything. But I think that's really great. Yeah, really one, clever. I, I like that. It's really that clever. Good, isn't it? Yeah, I really definitely. Like it. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you, Helen, was about the the podcast you run. You've got a podcast called Kindly Blunt, and um, you know you're a big advocate for changing the conversation and narrative around cancer. So I'm really curious to ask, you know, where, where do you think we've been going wrong with the kind of narrative up to now, and what, what's the what's your experience taught you about how we should be talking about and kind of relating to cancer? I'll probably say I don't know if we've been doing it wrong. I think yeah. sometimes, like you said, it's sort of uneducated. Yeah. And why would we be educated unless it hits us, either us or a family member? Yeah. Uh, I think I think if we're going down the road of how to sort out a cancer problem, I just plough my money into research. Yeah. I'm a real advocate of, you know, there's all I'm all for over here we have Macmillan nurses and stuff like that. I'm all for that. It's great. Yeah. But for me, I want the research done. I want people not to have to have chemotherapy anymore. I want it to not. It's one in two, isn't it? People get cancer. And it's different grades of cancer. So not everybody has chemotherapy and there's some that's literally. But I think I'm not sure if we're doing it wrong. I just think we have so much more to learn about it. And it's probably funding and finances and but generally people as us as human beings. I think we're just really busy and we don't sometimes stop and think I should maybe know a bit more about that Mm. or you know or you know if let's go into self-checking if if I can raise awareness here today I'd be really happy you know do all the self-checks you know I'm a retired osteopath so obviously I was aware of pathology I used to be a pathology lecturer as well but you know if your bowel habits are different if you can't swallow if you've you know if you've got a mammogram or if you've got a lump or if you testicular lump whatever it is go and get it looked at don't wait because the best scenarios, they say, no, you know, if you're worried, you're going to waste somebody's time. That is the best scenario ever. Yeah. If somebody goes, no, 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 you're wasting my time. Great. Sure. But, you know, and I, I told you before this interview, my husband has had t- testicular cancer right. when he was 23. You know, I've had cancer now. My dad had esophageal cancer and that was just because he couldn't swallow very well. But he went early. And if you go, the earlier you mm. go, the better the chances. And I think sometimes people are frightened. They're frightened so they don't go, but actually we should be frightened and go. Right. Because quite often it's going to be negative. But yeah, if nothing else at this podcast, everybody just have a little check today. Yeah. Get your test done. Don't delay. You know, the day I had my mammogram and I had no symptoms, my daughter was moving house that day and I thought, I'll maybe delay it. And I think she said to me, no, no, go and have it done, but you could probably have it done on the way. There's a different centre here. Right. So I did. And it was pouring with rain. It was COVID. I was having to stand outside. I did not want to be there. Mm. How fortunate that I did, yeah, you know? Absolutely. So I think encourage everybody to get your checks done. 
Yeah, that's Greyhound. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, thanks. I think one other thing I wanted to ask you about was I read a principle you have, which is commit to achieve. And I was interested to know, you know where that came from and, and also maybe you can expand on it. What does it mean? What, what does it look like in your life? Yeah, so where it came from was I mentor business owners as well. And I remember saying to my business mentor, I'm giving them all the things they need to run a business, their website, whatever, their Facebook, social media, but they don't do it. And right. he said, and I said, but I would do it. And he goes, you do different things. What do you do? So I was I was actually away on a retreat in Thailand. It was tough. I had to go down the beach. I got sent with my notebook, go to the beach and work it out. Off I went to a white beach and sat down. And then I thought, well, what do I do? Well, I do care of self, which is this is how I've coined it now. But I exercise. I like to hydrate, eat well as much as possible. I enjoy the odd donut when I have one. But, you know, I like to eat food that looks like the food it should look like. I like to take time off. I like to do journaling and affirmations and be positive. I love that. So care of self is the first one. And then I was like, well, everybody needs to sort of know their why. Why are you doing what you do, whether it be in life or business? Why are you doing? What do you want? And then set your goals, targets and your dreams for what you want. And then the third one was, well, people still can't do it. And it was like, well, they've got limiting beliefs. So a lot of us stop doing what we want to do because we think somebody else can do it better. We feel we're an imposter. We've got money issues, whatever it is. Limiting beliefs is probably one of the biggest things I help people with. Because then once you you believe in yourself and you're confident, you can do most of the things. And very rarely is somebody an imposter. You know, if I said to you, I'm a dentist, I am definitely being an imposter. I am not. Do not let me near your teeth, right? But if I say I'm a great business mentor and I'm a good author, then that is true. And I can look myself in the mirror again and say, is that true? So, you know, limiting beliefs. The next one was understanding how. So the nuts and bolts of doing what you want to do, whether it be running a business, running a marathon, you have to understand how you're going to do it. And everybody needs that bit. And then the last one was how to take effective action. So I'm all about not being busy, being busy. It's taking effective action. And if we use the marathon as an example, running a marathon, you're effective in your training if you run a marathon. You can't just go out and do it. You also can't just guess what you're doing. There's some really great programs out there that tell you to train up slowly, to do your long runs, to then taper, to run the race. And that's effective action. You you know, you can't just go and say, I'll do 20 miles, three weeks, and I'll do five the next. And you can apply that to anything in your life. Being effective rather than being busy you know, I'm not a believer in taking a long time. You know, in my business world, I say to people, give yourself 10 minutes, sit your butt down and do the job at, at once now. Do it now. Cut off the distractions. And if you go by sort of Parkinson's law, where you work into the time that you're given, if you only have 10 minutes, you'd be amazed how much you get yeah. done right. when you cut the distractions. So, yeah, so so it's care of self. Know your why. Release your limiting beliefs understand how and take effective action and with all of those then you can commit to what you want to achieve mm. without putting all those elements together it's pretty hard and and I wrote my first book I've got your back which is just there okay I'm pointing I know I'm on a podcast but I'm pointing right and um, I've got your back is all about how to run your business and that's the book that I put them in but I, it's how I live my life yeah. it's just put into a little format so people can understand it but it's a great way to do anything you know, you can't have a successful business and a really shitty life. They don't work. Mm. You can't have a great life and a terrible work life that you go to that you hate. Yeah. That doesn't work either. So you've got to think about the whole thing. And I do come from being an osteopath. So I'm all about moving your physiology, your mental health, all that sort of stuff to do whatever you want to do. That's great. 
No, I love that, Helen. I really do. Um, yeah, and there's sort of so many principles in there, which I've kind of come across independently, but I love how you've kind of put them all together in a, in a process. So that was great. Uh, you know, this podcast called the Intelligent Performance Podcast. So maybe that's a good segue into, you know, what what does that mean for you, intelligent performance? Yeah, so I, I wrote this down. So if I look down, because oh, I, I was like, I think it is about being effective at what you do. I think it's about engineering your success. So, and I think that works with your the way you use the word. But for me, it's like engineering where you want to go, planning your path, making sure it's it's going to work as you want it to, being focused, being structured, uh, having a positive attitude really helps. And I know sometimes it's a bit cliche we throw it out there, but it's a much nicer place to be when you're smiling and being happy. <laughs> it's a much nicer place to be. And then just committing to what you want and going for it. None of this, oh, I was going to do that, but I gave up. I speak to so many people that say, oh, I wanted to write a book or I want to write a book. Well, they were talking to me when I wrote my first book three or four years ago, and they're still saying the same thing, I want to write a book. So for me, intelligent performance is about setting what you want to do, working out how you're going to do it, and then just being effective in how you plan that action to get there. Yeah, great. I love it. Simple makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm very simple. (laughs) (laughs) Often described as very simple. Right. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, the last question I've got is just, you know, in terms of looking at your life now, maybe the future, but what kind of gives you meaning or purpose in life these days? You know, you've been through a lot, you know, you're now, you know, path to recovery and touch words, you can stay that way. But yeah, what, what kind of gives you your purpose these days? I think being grateful for life, number mm-hmm. one, really simple, being grateful that I've woken up every morning, uh, you know, going back to being born, all that sort of stuff I'm really grateful for. I love my family, my family and my world, which I think most people would say, but making sure I connect more with my elderly parents that maybe I was, you know, doing it a bit more often and realizing they're not going to be here forever and none of us are going to be here forever. Living every day, being grateful for what I've got. And as I said to you, you know, like watching a sunrise, watching a sunset, that's my thing. Being near the sea, I like traveling, so I travel as much. I mean, I was in Dublin three weeks ago. I was in Chichester the weekend, and then I was in Paris this weekend. I'm just planning a trip to New York. I want to travel, see the world, and my business allows me to do that now. And really working where I want, when I want, and with whom I want to work with. And that for me is my thing of success, you know. So, yeah, that's really what gives me my purpose. But making sure every day there's something I put in it that is great, not just going, oh, I'll do something on Thursday and I'll go through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I put something in and it could be just reading a book, watching a program, seeing a friend, phoning somebody, writing a letter. I try and put something in every day that either makes me smile or hopefully makes somebody else smile. How wonderful. I love that. Yeah, it makes me think. What am I doing every day that makes me smile? Yeah. And and if if I'm not, what what can I start doing? So yeah, that's great. Well, listen, it's been such a fascinating, moving, inspirational conversation. I and mean, for everyone listening, you do go and get yourself a copy of Helen's book, Agnes Bay. Sorry, Agnes B. Cancer and me. I read it as Bayer before. Can- Agnes B. <laughs> Cancer and me. She's called Beatrice. It's B for sure. Yes, I see. Now, now I understand. <laughs> but that's great. Well, listen, thanks so much for your generosity of time. Really wonderful to share, hear your story. Yeah, and thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me.